We continue our sermon series uh, this morning in Nehemiah chapter 11. If uh, you don't have a Bible, the words are printed on your sermon guide so that you can follow along. Nehemiah chapter 11, it is a long, long list of names. So I'm going to spare you a little bit. Uh, We are going to read through it, but I will be jumping a few verses at a time uh, so that we get through it. Uh, and you understand kind of the the flow of it. So Nehemiah chapter 11, starting in verse one. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalel, of the sons of Perez, down to verse seven. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Kaliah, son of Messiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, down to verse 10. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jochen, Jeriah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Merath, son of Ahitab, ruler of the house of God. Down to verse 15. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Heshab, son of Azrakan, son of Hashabiah, son of Bunai. Down to verse 19. The gatekeepers, Achab, Talmud, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172 down to verse 22. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzad, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. We read this chapter and we preach on this chapter because God's word is true and there is life and truth found in every bit of his word. Have you ever wondered how these companies and these organizations get hold of your email? so that they can graciously send you spam. I, um, I have found it almost impossible to unsubscribe quickly enough with the number of spam emails that I get. One that I get that's very regular is uh, from some sort of Christian organization, I forget the name. Uh, and they have graciously added me to their email list. I didn't even have to ask. And if you sense sarcasm spewing, you are sensing correctly. The gist of the email goes something like this. 
if you will bring in this person to do a Christian comedy act in your church, we guarantee that your Sunday morning worship will increase by 50%. And I read it and I go, wow, didn't know it was that easy. What have we been missing all along? And then there's a list of testimonials from ministry leaders and pastors, how they brought this person in and their Sunday worship has doubled in size. And every time I get it, as quickly as I delete it, it raises the question in my heart and my mind, what marks a fruitful and a faithful church? By faithful, I mean a church that, that is faithful to the word of God, trusts the word of God, but a church that's fruitful, meaning that it's growing. Nehemiah chapter 11 answers this question because it is a chapter about the repopulation of Jerusalem, the regrowth of a, of a people, of a city, of a temple that had been destroyed. The Old Testament church, Israel here, is repopulating a city. And how did they do it? Well, they had a vision, they were on mission, and they were resting on God's promise. And the same is true for us today as the church, the new Israel. So what marks a faithful and a fruitful church? First, it's a church with vision. It's a church with vision. Where do we stand here in the book of Nehemiah? Well, remember, God's people were in exile for 70 years in Babylon. And in waves, they started coming back to Jerusalem. The city wall was rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt. And now they're beginning to repopulate Jerusalem. The question is, why is the focus on Jerusalem? I mean, what's the significance of Jerusalem? Why wouldn't God's people just remain in the, the, the quiet, comfy suburbs in the towns and villages of Judah? Why? Why is there such an emphasis on repopulating and regrowing the city of Jerusalem? Well, the shorter answer is because that was where the hope of God's people was centered. Listen to Psalm 48, how Psalm 48 describes Jerusalem. Verses one to three, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. That's Jerusalem, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, Jerusalem in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Then verses 12 to 14, walk about Zion. Walk about Jerusalem. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. Jerusalem, specifically the temple, was the dwelling place of God. That's why it was, it was the hope of God's people. It was the hope of Israel. And that explains why when they were uh, sent into exile in Babylon, that right after they went into exile, we read of their, their thoughts towards Jerusalem. They had been ripped out of Jerusalem. 
The city had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. And in Psalm 137, we read their thoughts about home, their thoughts about Jerusalem. Listen to what they say. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. In the midst of all of Israel's struggles, triumphs, failures, when they repented and they were restored, they had this vision of Jerusalem as their hope and the hope for the entire world. Now you say, where is Jerusalem today? What is Jerusalem today? Well, the easy answer is it's a plot of land. It's a city in the Middle East, in Israel. But when Jesus died and rose again, he, he ushered in the meaning of Jerusalem. When in John chapter 2, for example, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Clearly, Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple in the physical city of Israel, in Jerusalem. No, he was talking about his body. You see, Jerusalem today is the body of Christ, which is the church, which is spread around the globe. It's not a plot of land in the Middle East. The church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, because of his death, resurrection, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the dwelling of God is now in his church spread around the globe. So we can say the church is the new Israel. The church is the new Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 21 makes this connection. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the body of Christ. That's the church. The church is the new Jerusalem. So just as God's people in the Old Testament through their triumphs and their failures and the brokenness and their idolatry and all they faced upon restoration, they would have this vision of Jerusalem. It was the place where God dwelled. It was the hope for the nations. It was the hope for their sin. Everything centered around Jerusalem, and now today, post-resurrection of Christ, the church is the new Jerusalem. And we, too, set Jerusalem as our highest joy, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, the kingdom of God, that one day, all the pain, all the suffering, all the hurts, all the death will be gone when Jesus Christ returns with the new Jerusalem. And so we, in the same way, set our vision around the coming kingdom. It's a kingdom vision when things will be made right. A fruitful and a faithful church has vision of the kingdom, the way things are supposed to be, and that that has come in part in Jesus and it's coming in full when he returns again. A church that is fruitful and faithful is a church with vision. When Martin Luther King delivered his speech in August of 1963 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, he spoke of kingdom vision. Listen to a little bit of what he said. I have a dream 
I have a vision that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream, I have a vision that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's a new Jerusalem vision, a kingdom vision of how things should be, where things are not right. It was a man compelled by Vision not that he created, the vision of Revelation 21. Now, nine years uh, before he delivered that speech, he delivered a sermon in his church in Montgomery, Alabama, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And that sermon was titled, Transformed Nonconformist. And he said this, the Christian is called upon not to be like a thermometer, conforming to the temperature of his society, but he must be like a thermostat serving to transform the temperature of his society. That's another way of saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us a kingdom vision, a vision of the kingdom that is coming in full when he returns. And that vision is to transform our world, our culture, our society now that a church that is faithful and fruitful is a church that has vision. We're compelled by this vision for the city of Jacksonville, where God has placed us. It's the reason that we partner with Southwind Villas 10 minutes from here, a community where we're tutoring students who don't know how to read. That is not right. Kingdom vision says that's wrong, and we need to get after it. That's why we partner with City Rescue Mission that is bringing hope and healing to the homeless in Jacksonville. It's why we partner with First Coast Women's Services that contends for the life of the unborn. And it's a place for, for mothers, for women who have uh, unwanted or unplanned pregnancies to go where they can have help and find help. It's the reason why we plant community groups in the various neighborhoods around this church. It's the reason why we plant churches in the various communities around this city. It's a kingdom vision for the city of Jacksonville coming underneath the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. That's why we plant churches. It's a vision that's bigger than us. It's a vision that's bigger than any church. But it's a compelling vision that God gives us of the new Jerusalem. And just like God's people, when they were ripped out of Jerusalem and taken to Babylon in Psalm 137, they say, Oh, may Jerusalem be our highest joy. So we, in a broken world's exile, say, oh, may the new heavens and the new earth 
be our greatest joy when King Jesus returns and sets everything right. And may we be a part of that now. What marks a faithful and fruitful church? It's a church with vision. Second, it's a church on mission. It's a church on mission. The strategy for repopulating Jerusalem in verses one to two is, is quite interesting. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. It appears that moving from the suburbs of Judah into the city of Jerusalem wasn't all that attractive. They had to cast lots to decide which one person, 10%, which one out of 10 would move back into the city. And then it says that the ones who received the lot and moved back in, they were applauded. They were cheered. In other words, it seems that it was, a, it was an act of sacrifice to move back into Jerusalem. Now, why is that the case? Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, while the wall around the city had been rebuilt and the temple had been re rebuilt, the city was still broken down. The houses hadn't been reconstructed. Infrastructure was lacking. It was a ghost town. It was a broken down city relative to the suburbs where they were living in the towns and villages in Judah surrounding Jerusalem that were lush and built out, Jerusalem was not. So the move back into Jerusalem was a move from comfort to discomfort. It was a sacrifice. Now there's a second reason why it was a sacrifice. Jerusalem was in the crosshairs of the nations. In fact, it had already been destroyed, taken to the ground by the Babylonians, which is why they were taken into exile, and now they're returning. And so to move back into Jerusalem was putting yourself in the crosshairs because the surrounding nations did not want Jerusalem rebuilt or strong or flourish. And so moving back in to strengthen and repopulate and have Jerusalem flourish would cause the resistance to come. Just like we saw in the beginning of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah moves back to rebuild Jerusalem, what happens? All kinds of resistance, right? So a move back into Jerusalem said, I'm putting myself back in the crosshairs of the nations. It took sacrifice. It was a huge sacrifice, but it was a sacrifice that was required to see this glorious vision of Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, rebuilt. And that is true of, of any vision. Glorious visions are great, but those visions coming to reality require mission, require sacrifice. Mission comes at a cost. I mentioned Martin Luther King's sermon that he gave in his church in 1954. One year later, five blocks from the pulpit where he preached that sermon, a 42-year-old seamstress named Rosa Parks boarded a segregated bus after work one day. She sat in the middle 
behind the white section. And as the white section filled up, the bus driver got up and he told all the black people to get up and move to the back of the bus and to stand to make room for the white people. And Rosa Parks on that day politely refused. And that sparked a ripple. It started with a court showdown, citywide boycott, and eventually the Supreme Court ruling that segregation was unconstitutional. Now, I love Michael Horton's description of what Rosa Parks did that day. He says, this extraordinary act flowed from her ordinary life of obeying and following Jesus. Listen to what he says. Rosa Parks didn't wake up one day and decide to become the first lady of civil rights. She just boarded a bus, as she did every day for work, and decided that this day she wasn't going to sit in the back as a proper black person was expected to do in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama. She knew who she was and what she wanted. She knew the cost, and she made the decision to pursue what she believed in enough to sacrifice her own security. At that point, she wasn't even joining a movement. She was just the right person at the right place and time. What made her the right person were countless influences, relationships, and experiences, most of them seemingly insignificant and forgotten. God had already shaped her into the sort of person who would do such a thing. For her, at least, it was an ordinary thing to refuse to sit in the back of the bus on this particular trip. But for history, it had radical repercussions. She just took a stand for Jesus. It was a cost. But she took a stand for Jesus that was fueled by kingdom vision. The kingdom vision that we see in Revelation 21, where all nations, all colors will gather around the throne. It's not right that there's segregation on a bus. Kingdom vision, motivated mission, which had a cost to it. Mission comes at a cost. It's the daily cost of little sacrificial acts of obedience to Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we see the cost of mission is in the sending and the going. The scriptures are full of sending and going, all the way back to Abraham. Right? God drew, he was a pagan, he wasn't a worshiper of God. He didn't know God. God drew him in and then sent him out to go. And that pattern is repeated throughout the scriptures that were drawn in to be sent out, that were called to create space for outsiders, that's the biblical phrase for hospitality, that we're called to make disciples of all nations. And we experience this cost every time, for those of you that have been involved with one community group, multiplying into two groups, you've experienced the cost of sending and going. Every time that we multiply one church into two churches, we experience the, the missional cost of sending and going, which we are experiencing right now as we prepare to plant at the beach. One of the, the passages of Scripture, chapters, that gives an amazing description of that sending and going cost is Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul is standing on the shore of Ephesus with the Ephesians elders. 
He had been in Ephesus ministering among them for a while, and now he's on the shore. He was compelled by the Spirit, the Scripture says, constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he gives his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And it says they kneeled down and they prayed. And then this. There was much weeping on the part of all. They they embraced Paul and kissed him. Mission, multiplication, sending and going is not easy. It's hard. When we send out Kevin and Jen Bigelow with the launch team to plant at the beach, that is going to be hard. There's going to be tears. But those tears, similar to Acts 20, are not a sign that we're doing something wrong. Those tears are simply a sign of the cost of mission that our Lord Jesus calls us to. And this cost is born on even smaller scales. The cost is, is born when you, you give generously to a mission or to a church or to a cause instead of updating a part of your house or buying a new car. Uh, this cost is, is born every time that you spend a Friday night with employees from your work who desperately need Jesus rather than spending it with your best friends. Uh, This cost is is born every time you watch someone's kids so that they can get away and have a night together to restore and refresh their marriage. The cost is born every time that you share the gospel or you share some gospel truth with someone knowing that it may result in some degree of rejection. Mission always comes at a cost, but it is driven by a glorious vision, a kingdom vision the new heavens and the new earth, what marks a faithful and fruitful church, a church with vision, a church on mission, and finally, a church resting on God's promises. In verses 3 to 24, we read a long list of names, functions, and roles, and you say, what possibly can we learn from this? That's a lot of names. That's a lot of roles. It's a lot of functions. It's a lot of detail. Names I can't even pronounce. What do we learn from this? Well, there is a hidden piece of information in verses 3 to 24. Little nugget of information that leads to a glorious truth. Verse 4. List the sons of Judah. Verse 7. List the sons of Benjamin. Verse 15 lists the Levites. Now that includes three of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. You say, where are the other nine tribes? Well, the other nine were the unfaithful ones who had rejected the Lord, who were part of the northern kingdom. You say, wow, there were 12, now there's three. The three were the remnant. And God in his scriptures always talks about a remnant. And the remnant are those who who remain faithful to the Lord, faithful to God, and it always gets smaller and smaller. So you've got the 12 tribes that God chooses to be a light to the nations. And now by this time in Nehemiah 11, we're down to three. 
pick up New Testament, when Jesus comes and he chooses his 12 disciples, why does he choose 12? Because the church is the new Israel. 12 tribes, he chooses 12 disciples. Do you know that by the time you get to the cross, how many of the disciples are left? Zero. They all flee. Peter not only flees, but he rejects Jesus to his, to, I mean, outrightly three times. By the time we get to the cross, there's a remnant of one. It's Jesus Christ, the faithful one. He is the remnant. He's the one on whom all of God's promises lie. This is a tremendous, glorious truth of freedom that God's promises rest on Jesus Christ alone. They don't rest on you. Jesus Christ accomplished your salvation on his own. You didn't contribute to it. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, or you're wondering how do I have a relationship with God, Jesus Christ didn't just make salvation possible, he accomplished it. And it is there for you to receive as a finished salvation that you don't work for. That's what it means, right? To trust in the faithful one, the remnant of one who accomplished your salvation. And it is tremendously freeing when you hear that and you understand that, that God's promises rest on Christ, not on you. You know, when God's people were sent into exile in Babylon, God wrote them a letter through the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to what he said. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. They spent 70 years in Babylon banking on that promise. And by the time we're at Nehemiah 11, that promise had been fulfilled. God never reneges on his promise. And where we stand today, he says, I will visit you again. Jesus Christ will return to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. What's that mean? It means this, no matter how bleak things get, no matter how bleak things get in your life, in your world, no matter how bleak things get in a church, in our culture, God will be true to his promise to send Jesus Christ to make things right. That vision is glorious. But there's a second aspect to the resting on God's promise that flows from this passage. Lots of names that I said, lots of different roles are listed. In fact, if you go through it, you've got chiefs, overseers, priests, men of valor, leaders of praise, gatekeepers, temple servants, singers. Why didn't Nehemiah chapter 11 just say everybody who was in Jerusalem had a role and a part to play? Why the specific names with the specific roles? It's because in the kingdom of God, there aren't numbers. And the same in the church. There's not numbers. You're not just a number in the kingdom of God. You have a name, 
a specific name and a specific role. And that's what we see here in this chapter. Peter describes it in 1 Peter 2, 4 this way, as you come to him, a living stone, Jesus Christ, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to call Jesus the cornerstone, but he calls you living stones. That that's how God is building his church. It's how he's building his kingdom is through living stones and each stone has a name and each stone has a role to play a function. If you think about a, a, a beautiful stone building and how it's constructed, think about a, a big stone cathedral, beautiful cathedral in Europe. You know how that works. There's a, there's a chief mason. And then under the chief mason, there are working masons. And the chief mason will come to a working mason and put a, a, just a raw block of stone down and tell this chief mason, hey, I want you to, or tell the working mason, hey, I want you to, to shave that corner off and I want you to cut a little bit here and, and I'll be back in a little bit. And then he goes back. Well, see, the chief mason, he looked, he has a vision of the entire structure. He has a vision of what this wall should look like and how the stones fit in. So out of that vision, he goes back to that working mason and he says, oh, it looks good, but shave a little bit more here, a little bit there. And, and finally, he'll come back and say, yes, yeah, that's right. And he'll pick it up and he'll put it in the wall. Right? Jesus Christ is the chief mason. You and I are living stones, which means that he gives us our, our name, our wiring, our giftedness, our personality all to be a living stone that has great purpose in the wall, so to speak. Great purpose in the kingdom of God, in the church of Jesus Christ. And what that means is when you, when you get that picture that you're a living stone, you know, in, in, in Revelation, it talks about the Lamb's book of life. You know what that means? That everyone who is in Christ is in the Lamb's book of life that your name is there. You're not a number, you're a name. You're a living stone. And that means when you get that, that there's no anxiously clamoring for someone else's gift mix or gifts. There's no anxiously jockeying for a different role that you think's more prominent or recognized in a church. It means there's no jealousy towards someone who is flourishing in their gifts. A faithful and a fruitful church is a church with vision. It's a church on mission that understands the cost, but it is a church that rests on God's promises in Christ, that Jesus Christ will build his church and that Jesus Christ will build his church through living stones, you and me. Let's pray. Father, when we think about God's people thousands of years ago, sitting along the river in Babylon and just having been ripped out of their homeland and out of Jerusalem and them saying, if we forget Jerusalem, 
When Jerusalem be our highest, highest joy, we today sit here in a broken land as exiles saying, if we forget the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, this kingdom vision that things will be made right once and for all. Oh, Father, don't let us lose sight of that vision and lose sight of the one whose vision it is, the vision of Jesus Christ. We don't have to craft it. It's a vision that has been given to us by your son, Jesus. Would you make us a people that are willing to bear the cost, to be on mission, to sacrifice towards that glorious vision that's not an if or a might, but a, a sure foundation that's coming. And Father, at, at the core of the gospel, may we understand that we are a people that rest on your promises, that Jesus, you accomplish salvation. You're the one with the vision. You're the one that is ultimately on mission. You call us to partner with you in it. Oh, Father, would you make us a, a faithful and fruitful church for your glory and your glory alone and for your kingdom's sake and for the sake of your son, Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.